It is the best-selling book in history. No volume ever written has been more loved and quoted. And its words, sometimes simple and sometimes mysterious, should always be studied carefully. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, providing accurate and practical answers to all your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Jean Ross. Hello, friends. Pastor Doug is out this evening. This is Pastor Jean Ross, but how about an amazing fact? Now, we've all heard of homing pigeons, but have you ever heard about homing penguins? In 2012, retired 71-year-old Johan de Souza, who lived near the south of Rio de Janeiro, found a Patagonian penguin on the shore. The poor creature was covered in oil and starving. De Souza took the penguin home, cleaned him up, gave him sardines, and nursed him back to health. Along the way, the two formed a special bond, and de Souza named his friendly bird Dindum. Eventually, the little penguin swam off into the sunset. D'Souza's neighbors all said that that would be the last he would ever see of his feathered friend. But a few months later, a happy dindum waddled back to Souza's home, honking with delight and wagging its tail like a dog. Biologists say that such penguins are known to migrate thousands of miles each year, feeding and breeding between colonies, but they've never heard of one bonding with a human. D'Souza says that he loves the penguin as though it were his own child, and he believes that the penguin loves him. For the past several years, the penguin has come back to visit the man who saved his life. Each year, he arrives in June and leaves again in February. Did you know, friends, that in the Bible, we have a story of a man whose life was saved by birds? Stay tuned for more as Amazing Facts brings you this edition of Bible Answers Live. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, accurate and practical answers to your Bible questions. Well, friends, welcome back to Bible Answers Live. As mentioned a little while ago, Pastor Doug is out this evening, but this is a live, interactive, international Bible study. And we welcome your Bible questions. If you have a Bible-related question, the number to call here to the studio is 800-463-7297. Again, that number is 800-463-7297. You can also join us, if you'd like, on Facebook. We're actually live-streaming our program this evening at the Amazing Facts Facebook page. So you're welcome to join us there. Well, in the Amazing Fact that we used to open the program, we spoke about a person in the Bible whose life was saved by birds. Now, those of you who know your Bible, you've probably guessed who this person is. And if you guessed Elijah, you are correct. First Kings chapter 17, verse 6 says, The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. This is during a time when there was persecution coming against Elijah by Jezebel and Ahab the king. There was a famine in the land, and God provided for his prophet, for Elijah, by feeding him miraculously with food that birds brought to him. Now, Elijah is rather an interesting Bible character. He was a fearless, uh, spirit-filled preacher. 
he was also uh, a prophet and the gift of prophecy. He was translated to heaven without seeing death. The Bible records two individuals uh, that were taken to heaven without seeing death. You have Enoch before the flood. You have Elijah uh, during the time of Israel. And uh, we also find Elijah appearing to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament, along with Moses, who was resurrected and taken to heaven after he died and was buried on the mountain. Now, our free offer talks about Elijah. Elijah represents uh, a special movement in the last days of God's people who are proclaiming the Elijah message, calling people to repentance, proclaiming a prophetic message found in the book of Revelation. You might be wondering, well, what does Elijah have to do, especially with our day, and why did he appear to Jesus? Well, we got a book we'd be happy to send you. It's called The Two Witnesses, uh, written by Pastor Doug Batchelor. talks about Moses and Elijah. Again, the book is called The Two Witnesses, and if you'd like to receive the book, just call our resource phone line, and that's 1-800-835-6747. Again, that's 800-835-6747, and you can ask for the book called The Two Witnesses, Moses and Elijah, and we'll be happy to send that out to anyone who calls and asks. Well, we're going to go to the phone lines. Again, if you have a Bible-related question, our phone line here to the studio is 800-463-7297. The first caller that we have is Ron, listening in Tennessee. Ron, welcome to the program. Hello, this is Ron. Hi, Ron. Um, my question is uh, about Revelation chapter 17, verses uh, 10 and 11. Uh, I don't quite follow what it's talking about, who the different things are. Okay. Let me read it, and then we can talk about it. Uh, Revelation 17, verse 10 says, There are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. And then verse 11 says, The beast that was and is not uh, is himself also the eighth, and he's of the seven, and he's going into perdition. So, of course, here in Revelation chapter 17, we have this picture of a woman in chapter 17 riding a scarlet-colored beast, and she has on her forehead the name written Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots. And then we get an explanation for the different images that we see. And with reference to the beast's heads, there are seven heads, the angel explains in verse 10 that these seven heads are seven mountains, but they also represent seven kings. In Bible prophecy, a king often represents a kingdom, as we can see in the book of Daniel. So who are these seven kings? Well, these are the seven uh, principal nations that have warred against God's people. And it starts all the way back in the time of Israel, uh, the first nation to really conquer and occupy the promised land was the nation of Assyria. They conquered the uh, 10 tribes of the north. The next is Babylon, which conquered Judah and Jerusalem, took the Jews captive for 70 years. The next kingdom that you have then is Medo-Persia, Greece, you have Rome. And then in the New Testament times, around, you know, during the Middle Ages, you have a church power, the Roman church, that was persecuting the Protestants and those who were holding to the truths of the Bible. So when it says um, there are seven kings, five are fallen, there would be Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. One is, that would be the papal power during the 1260 years of papal supremacy during the Dark Ages. One is not yet come. Some have seen in that the second beast of Revelation 13, which is the United States, 
It says, when he comes, he must continue a short space, uh, meaning in a persecuting uh, position or in a persecuting way, he continues a short space. And then, of course, the beast itself is of the seven, and that, again, would be the papal power. That's one explanation of who the seven kings are. So the papal power will come back as the eighth after the seventh? Yes. Remember, the papal power received a deadly wound in 1798 when uh, Berthier, Napoleon's general, took the Pope a prisoner, but that wound began to be healed when Mussolini gave back the Vatican its independence, became a separate independent nation, and thus it is the power that was, is not, and yet is. So that's talking about this deadly wound. The papacy recovers from that, and it continues to grow in stature and influence, especially politically amongst the nations in the world. So you're saying that the seventh is the United States? The one that is yet to come is the United States, yes. Which would be the seventh, yeah. Right. Okay. And then the papacy will come back again as the eighth. Correct. Because it came back already. Yes. So once, so in essence then... So it's going to grow in its power. Right. So the United States in one sense is going to set up and be a part of the setup of the papacy taking power again as the eighth. Correct. And of course we can see that happening... In the news today, where we see great influence that the papacy has, and they're extending that power to all parts of the earth, not just in North America, but South America and all over. Okay, that makes sense. I got it now. All right. Well, thanks for your call, Ron. We appreciate that. Next caller that we have is George listening in New Jersey. George, welcome to the program. Hi, how you doing tonight, all right? Doing good. Okay, I have a question uh, on the millennium. I pretty much have been a premillennialist for most of my study all my life. Uh, but the, the traditional premillennialist where I believe that the rain is on earth, you know, for a thousand years. But according to what I've read over the years with Amazing Facts and, you know, your church, that uh, you believe that the millennium is in heaven for a thousand years. And that does seem pretty credible looking at the New Testament. But there's some of those difficult passages, and maybe you know what they are in the Old Testament, that kind of talk about the Lord reigning over the earth, but it, it talks in the way that it sounds like it's still when sin is going on. There's one in Isaiah, I think 68 or 65, and one that's really puzzling to me is maybe this is the one I want, want you to concentrate on, is Zechariah 14. You know, it says the Lord will be king over all the earth, Yes. and uh, it, it sounds like it's eternity, but if you go several verses down, it talks about people going up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Yes. And if they don't do that, there'll be no rain upon them. How is that? How do you explain that in conjunction with the belief that the rain is in heaven? Because it, it seems like it's on the physical earth where there is still sin. You see what I'm saying? There's those yes. difficult passages. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Zechariah chapter 14, of course, is symbolic, it's prophetic, and it's describing the reign of Christ on the earth. Now, I believe that when Jesus comes a second time, the dead in Christ are raised, the righteous are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, the wicked are all destroyed, and the devil is bound to the earth with his angels for a thousand years. The righteous go to heaven, and they're there for a thousand years, because Jesus said, I'm going to go prepare places for you in my Father's house, and then I'm going to come and receive you unto myself. But at the end of the 1,000 years, according to Revelation chapter 21, John says, I saw the new Jerusalem descending from God out of heaven. When the new Jerusalem descends, all the righteous will be in the city. And it's at that time that Jesus sets his foot, as we have it described here in Zechariah chapter 14, on the Mount of Olives, and it opens up and forms a great valley. 
and the new Jerusalem comes to rest. So the righteous are inside the city, and the wicked, who were dead prior to this, are now resurrected. And they stand on the earth as the sand of the seashore. And the devil is there, the angels are there. And Revelation then 20 describes what we call the great white throne judgment. Right. And at that point, after the judgment occurs, every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then there is a judgment that comes upon the wicked because they mount their attack upon the New Jerusalem and fire comes down and devours them. And then, according to Revelation 21, God creates a new heavens and a new earth. So what we see described here in Zechariah chapter 14 are events connected with what happens at the end of that 1,000 years when the new Jerusalem descends and comes down from God out of heaven. Because, for example, it says in that day, verse 4, in that day his feet shall stand upon the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The mountain shall be split in two from the east to the west. And then it says, if you look back a little bit, verse 3, the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. So the wicked are mounting their attack upon the new Jerusalem. Judgment comes upon them. And it's described here in Zechariah as a great battle. Revelation talks about the battle of Armageddon, where all the nations are gathered before the Lord. Zechariah 14 is really referring to events taking place at the end of the thousand years. But that, that part about the Feast of Tabernacles, that's the part that confuses me. You know, it talks about some going up, some didn't go up, and there'll be judgment upon them, like there's still sin. You see what I'm saying? That's, that's the part yep. that puzzles me. Well, there will, be, there will be sin right up until that final destruction of the wicked. How long does that occur? We don't know. Right. The Bible says the devil is loose for a little season. This is after and when the new Jerusalem comes down and the wicked are resurrected. The devil is loose for a little season. He goes out to deceive the nations. Whatever that is, I mean, there might be enough time for groups to organize themselves and arrange rebellion against God. They might be those who refuse to come up to New Jerusalem to acknowledge the Lord. So, you know, some of those things, we, we don't have the specific details on it, but I think Zechariah 14 is referring to events that take place at the end of that 1,000-year period. Yeah, some of those uh, Old Testament texts can be a little hard to understand, you know what I'm saying? They can be, and that's where you've got to kind of compare them with other passages, because some of these Old Testament prophecies had a historic application as well to events that were to take place in Jerusalem to the Jews, but it also had a broader prophetic application. I see what you're saying. So, uh, you know, Jerusalem was conquered by the enemies, and God did fight for the Jews on several occasions. But this also refers to a much greater event that takes place at the, at the end of the thousand years. I see. Well, anyway, I only bring it up because, you know, in typical premillennial literature, they bring that up and say that's a thousand year reign on the earth, you know, but you're familiar with that mm -hmm. teaching as you're, as you're aware of. Sure, absolutely. So, um, and the amazing facts teaching is kind of unique. You can't find too many theologians that teach that. At least I haven't found it in literature and I do a lot of study on my own. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, one of the places you can go to find more about this is some of the early Protestant reformers and theologians. Okay. They, they had a similar view that when Christ comes, the righteous would go to heaven for a thousand years. Now, it might vary, you know, as they looked at it and studied it, but some of the earlier reformers, some of the newer theology has become very popular in these in these last days, is more a futuristic interpretation, right, right. which includes that. So I like to go back to even the 
earlier reformers and, and some of those theologians. They have some real solid material. I'll try to Google that and look up some of those things, you know. So Yeah, sounds good. All right. Thanks, George. And again, we want to remind those who are listening, if you have not yet seen or read the Amazing Facts study guide called A Thousand Years of Peace, it talks about this 1,000-year period that George and I were just talking about. It uh, talks about Zechariah 14 as well as Revelation chapter 20 and 21, and you'll be blessed. If you'd like to receive that study guide, the number to call is 800-835-6747. That is the resource phone line. And just ask for the thousand years of peace, and we'll put that in the mail and send it to you. A beast, a dragon, and a woman. They sound like the characters in a fairy tale, but nothing could be further from the truth. These three symbolic end-time players are actually found in the book of Revelation, whose predictions about the last days are not exactly a bedtime story. But there is a book called The Beast, the Dragon, and the Woman. And it's a daring and concise overview of the Bible's most compelling and perplexing end-time players. And it tells about the struggle between truth and error. You'll even find out the part that America plays in these last days. If you want to be ready for the earth-shaking events yet to come, then make sure and get your copy of The Beast, the Dragon, and the Woman today. To order your copy of The Beast, the Dragon, and the Woman, call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. Don't be caught unprepared for the final events of Bible prophecy. We've got Chris listening in Florida. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you, Pastor. Yes, I have a question about, uh, uh, you know, Jesus says um, in uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, of or Matthew, uh, he says that uh, every sin can be forgiven, but the sin, except for the sin against the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But uh, how does it relate to um, the story, which is in the Levit- Levitic- Leviticus, uh, um, the case of blasphemy, the law, you know, by that uh, uh, man that uh, his mother was uh, Israelite and the father Egyptian, and he blasphemed the, uh, the name of the Lord. And uh, he, uh, the, the Lord said to Moses that he should be stoned. So how should, how should we understand that um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in New Testament equals uh, the blasphemy of God. Yeah. Well, let me let me see if I can say a few things about that. The verse you're referring to is in Matthew 12, 31. I'm going to read it for those who might be traveling and might not have their Bibles handy. It says, Therefore I say unto you the words of Jesus, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Now, the example that you mentioned there, Chris, was a person who blasphemed against God, but they were unrepentant. Uh, and therefore they were not forgiven. We have other examples in the Bible of people who sinned and were unrepentant and judgment came. Achan stole that which was not his from Jericho and judgment came upon him. And there were many other examples of that that we have in the Bible. But we also have examples in the Bible of people who were repentant and who were forgiven. For example, you've got Moses who killed an Egyptian and then had to flee for his life, but he was repentant and God forgave him. God used Moses in a mighty way. David, guilty of committing adultery as as well as indirect murder of, of Uriah, 
and yet he was forgiven. So every sin, as Jesus says, can be forgiven, but one that can't be forgiven is blasting against the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, the Bible tells us that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And blasting against the Holy Spirit is when someone puts themselves in the place of the Holy Spirit, meaning they reject the Holy Spirit. They harden their hearts to the promptings of the Spirit of God. And if it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, and it's the Holy Spirit that does that, if we grieve away the Holy Spirit, if we harden our hearts against the Holy Spirit, how are we to come to the point of repentance? Uh, how are we going to ask for forgiveness? And if we don't repent, we don't ask for forgiveness, we can't be forgiven. So that's why the sin that can't be forgiven is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's not a single sin that someone might commit. Sometimes people ask, well, maybe I committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. Uh, no, if you're wondering about that, you probably haven't. It means the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. Uh, but then again, we don't, want to, we don't want to neglect the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we want to allow the Spirit to guide us through the Word of God. Uh, does that help, Chris? Yes, but, but, but when, you, when you talk about uh, repentance, uh, I heard uh, on the radio from many pastors say that repentance is, is a gift from God, but it's not always available. Well, uh, repentance is available to anyone who seeks it. Those who don't seek it, those who harden their hearts against the Holy Spirit, they are not given repentance. It's not that God doesn't want to lead them to repentance, and God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But they've hardened their heart against the promptings of the Spirit, and there's nothing more God can do for them. They've, in essence, chosen their path, and their minds have been set in going their own way. You know, we do have a book, Chris, that kind of talks a little bit about this, and it's called The Unpardonable Sin. Uh, or the sin that can't be forgiven. And we'll be happy to send this to anyone who wants to learn more about the subject of the unpardonable sin. The number to call is 800-835-6747. And again, you can just ask for that book talking about the unpardonable sin or the sin against the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of Bible verses there. Uh, it's a very good and important subject. So I want to encourage you to call and ask for that. Thank you for calling, Chris. We have uh, Audrey listening from Oregon. Audrey, welcome to the program. Thank you. My call tonight is regarding Judges 11. I've, I've been studying about Jephthah's daughter when he vowed to God that he would sacrifice as a burnt offering to whatever walked out of his door first, and it happened to be his only daughter. And I've heard... I always thought that it was sort of like um, Hannah offering her son Samuel to the temple to be raised, you know, dedicated to God. Mm -hmm. But recently I heard that um, he did indeed um, offer his daughter as a burnt offering. Is that, why would God require that? Right. No, he didn't, he didn't offer her as a burnt offering. Had an animal come out, a, a clean animal, had a sheep or a goat. Um, or even a cow, if he had one, if that would have been the first thing that would have approached him as he came home, uh, he would have offered that as a burnt sacrifice, as an offering. But if his donkey happened to be the first thing to come, he wouldn't have offered his donkey as a sacrifice because that was forbidden, as well as human sacrifices was forbidden. So in the case of his daughter, what did he do? Well, he dedicated her to the service and to the work in the sanctuary. And uh, she never got married, and that's why you read on, it talks about her friends 
they bewail her virginity because she never had any children. She stayed loyal to the Lord. She stayed faithful. You know, in the New Testament, we have a story of a prophetess by the name of Anna. And you'll remember how she was also coming to the temple regularly. She provides service. She helped in different ways in the temple. And she was also, you know, she was a widow. She wasn't married. So Jephthah's daughter was consecrated to the service of the Lord uh, in the work of the sanctuary. She was not offered up as a sacrifice. Okay, well, that makes me feel a lot better because I've heard pastors recently say that she was indeed offered as a burnt sacrifice and a burnt offering. And then I went on the Internet and it said most of the people do believe that. And there's a portion that believe what you just said. Yeah. Well, you know, I think there's enough evidence just in the verse itself, in the passage that would refer to the fact that uh, she did live the rest of her life in service for the Lord in the temple. She never did get married. She never had children. Of course, the Bible tells us many places that any type of sacrifice that is unclean or any human sacrifice is an abomination to the Lord. So he couldn't accept that. Yes, that's what I always thought. And then I heard just recently that otherwise. So that's why, I want, that's why I called. Good. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thanks for calling, Audrey. Appreciate it. All right. Next caller that we have is, let's see, we've got uh, Emmanuel calling from Ghana, Africa. Emmanuel, welcome to the program. Uh, hello, Pastor Rose. Good morning. Good Good morning to you there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, please? Doing good. And your question? My question is uh, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 to 10. Uh, it reads that uh, Jesus Christ was tempted by the devil. So I, I just want to know that did the devil appear as a human being or he was in the spirit tempting the Lord? Okay, good question. Well, you know, the Bible says the devil can transform himself into an angel of light. One would assume that at least the first time, the first temptation, he probably came to Christ and appeared to be an angel sent from God to help deliver Jesus because of course he hadn't eaten for a long period of time Jesus was very weak he was tired and he probably showed up as if he was an answered prayer of Christ saying you know if you are the son of God uh, turn these stones to bread but it didn't take Jesus very long to realize this was not an angel sent from God this was indeed the devil and then if you read on a little in the story uh, it seems as though at some point the devil gives up on this masquerade of, of being a good angel because um the third temptation, he says, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of this earth. So it seems by that time, the devil realized that Christ knew who he really was. And so he didn't hide his identity anymore. And he said, if you bow down and worship me, I'm going to give you the kingdoms. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. So uh, maybe the first temptation, he first appeared as an angel of light. But then as time went on, he eventually revealed who he really is. Emmanuel, thank you for your uh, call all the way from Africa. It's a good, good question. Uh, we don't have time to take another caller because we're coming up on our break. The program is by no means over. We're just getting started. So if you have a Bible-related question, it's not too late to call. The number here to the studio is 800-463-7297. And that'll bring you here to the studio. Again, that's 800-463-7297. And I'll be giving another number that you might want to write down. This is our resource phone line. And this is 800-835-6747. And we're going to be offering different resources that we think will be a great benefit to you in your Bible study. So we have some important announcements, and then we'll be back to take more Bible questions. 
Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Through radio, television, print, evangelistic events, and the Internet, Amazing Facts International is heeding the call of Jesus to go into all the world. Millions of individuals in over 150 countries have been blessed by the Word of God. Amazing Facts has spawned new spheres of influence in India, Africa, China, and Indonesia. With each new country come hundreds of translated booklets, study guides, and video presentations produced in each region for the people of that region. Armed with these precious truths, gospel workers are empowered to spread bright rays of light on every path they travel. Please visit reachtheworld.amazingfacts.org to learn more about Amazing Facts International and how you can participate in this exciting, soul-winning ministry. That website again is reachtheworld.amazingfacts.org. Thank you for your support. An international pandemic killing thousands, riots ripping communities apart, a global economic implosion. Many are wondering, is this the end of the world? Few question the military, economic, and technological might of the United States. So if we really are facing the last days, if these worldwide catastrophes are really harbingers of the end, shouldn't we expect the United States to play a key role in the final events of Bible prophecy? The book of Revelation provides unmistakable clues. And to help you understand them, Amazing Facts is releasing America in Bible Prophecy. It's going to take you step by step in identifying the global forces at work in these last days. You might be surprised what the Bible really says. You owe it to yourself to find out. So get yourself a copy of America in Bible Prophecy. You're listening to Bible Answers Live where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and His plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Bible Answers Live. My name is John Ross. Pastor Doug is out this evening. If you have a Bible-related question, we would love to hear from you this evening. The number to call is 800-463-7297. That'll get you here to the studio. You can also join us at the Amazing Facts Facebook page. We're going to go straight back to the phone lines. We've got uh, James listening in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, James, welcome to the program. Thank you, Pastor. Uh, My question is, who was on earth first, Satan or Adam? All right, who was on earth first, Satan or Adam? Well, Satan was probably watching when... God created Adam and Eve, and he was looking for the perfect opportunity and coming up with the best way in which he could try and tempt and deceive them. And of course, we know the story how that he transformed himself into a snake in the tree that God had said, don't eat of it. So the war in heaven occurred before the creation of the earth. 
Uh, you can read in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. It says, There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the dragon was cast out, that old serpent of all called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So the devil was cast out of heaven. He sort of floated around space looking for a place that he could maybe claim as his. Somewhere within that time period, God creates the earth, and he sees Adam and Eve, and he says, ah, let me see if I can get them on my side. And he was successful in his deception, and he deceived Adam and Eve, and then this world became his dominion. At least he claimed it to be his dominion, but Christ, who is the second Adam, has uh, gained it back, and now Jesus is our representative. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks for your call, James. We've got Richard listening from Guyana. Richard, welcome to the program. Yes, thank you. Yes, and your call, your question tonight. Yes, I would like you to explain to me the difference between papal Rome and pagan Rome. Okay, very good. When we talk about papal Rome or pagan Rome, papal Rome is uh, the power that was ruling at the time of Christ. It's pagan Rome. They had a number of deities that they worshipped. Of course, one of the gods they worshipped was the Caesar uh, it was a persecuting power. It is very hard on the Jewish people. It was hard on the Christians. There was persecution from Rome um, against the early Christian church. But at the conversion of Constantine to Christianity, Christianity was then legalized within the Roman Empire. And as the Roman Empire began to fall apart because of these invading Germanic tribes that had come from northeast and began to conquer and occupy the territory that uh, Rome held, pagan Rome began to wane while papal Rome, that is the church based in Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, the papal power began to grow. And eventually the papal power became larger and more powerful and ruled a lot longer than pagan Rome. The beginning of that time period was the establishment of the papal power in 357 and go all, went all the way through till 1798 uh, when the papacy received its deadly wound. So th that's the difference between the papal Rome and the pagan Rome. Does that help, Richard? Yes, it does. Thank you. All right. Thank you for your call all the way from Guyana. We've got Peter listening in New Jersey. Peter, welcome to the program. Hello, Pastor. How are you tonight? Doing well. Just going to switch phones so I could hear you a little bit better. Okay. Okay, Pastor. Now, when we read the Bible, it's pretty clear we're never to take uh, vengeance on anyone or pour wrath out on anyone. And you know the verses like in Proverbs where it says, don't pour wrath out on anyone lest the Lord see it, and he turns his wrath away from them? Yes. And Ven vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So when, some so when someone causes us harm and we don't take vengeance, now the Lord does take vengeance on that person, could we be happy about it or are we to be sad about it? Well, you know, the Bible tells us to pray for our enemies, and that would include them in any condition. So sometimes people just uh, reap the consequences of bad decisions. It might not be a direct judgment from God. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it could also be them reaping what they have sowed. Uh, but from our perspective, we want to pray for those who persecute us. We want to pray for our enemies. Because we don't know where they are spiritually. Maybe through this experience, their hearts might be open to Bible truth. They might be willing to come to Christ 
and receive forgiveness. And we want to be there as an encouragement. So I don't think we should, you know, rejoice and say, aha, you see, I told you, you shouldn't have messed with me. God's, God's judging you because of that. I think we should have an attitude of a willingness to help if we can, placing them in God's hands. Maybe this is an opportunity for us to witness. Maybe this is a turning experience in their life. Very good, Pastor. One more question. Do you have a favorite uh, commentary from the Bible about the Bible from maybe like around the Reformed uh, time of period? Yes, there are several good commentaries that I sometimes will refer to. And there is a program. It's free. It's called eSword. And uh, you can download that on your computer. And you can actually download different commentaries from the Reformers. Gill is one. Henry is another. These are classics. You can actually download them for free because they're all public domain, and you can you can read those. So uh, that's a good resource. Thank you so much, sir. Good night now. All right. Thank you, Peter. We've got Jerry listening from Oregon. Jerry, welcome to the program. Yes, uh, uh, Pastor Ross. I, I'm blown away. I, I was planning to ask the, the question your second caller asked about, but there's a, excuse me, an important point that you did not expound upon. Now, Zechariah 14, verse 16, let me read it to you. Mm -hmm. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king. So these are the survivors after the attack, and then they're still there, and they're still subject to sanctions in the form of drought and plagues. Mm -hmm. The question is, well, how could that be after the earth is recreated and all things are new. Is that where you want, is that where you're going with that? Well, basically, I mean, I, I know from previous uh, sermons that your church's position is that when Jerusalem is attacked, the evil are destroyed, and there's basically paradise on earth from that point on. Mm -hmm. But this scripture doesn't corroborate that. Well, what I see happening here in Zechariah chapter 4 is... At the end of the 1,000 years, when the New Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven, Revelation chapter 21, the wicked all resurrected, and there is a period of time. How long that is, the Bible doesn't say. But during that time period, the wicked gather themselves together in opposition to God, and there is a point where they do mount their attack upon the New Jerusalem, and they are destroyed. Now, as I said, Zechariah chapter 14 has applications that apply to the nation of Israel and their experience, as well as uh, application to what happens in the kingdom that Christ establishes at the end of the thousand years. Similar to what you have in Matthew 24, you have signs of the destruction of Jerusalem that occurred in 70 AD mixed in with signs of the second coming of Christ. So I, I don't think we can take everything in Zechariah chapter 14 and say this all applies to a historical occurrence that happened to Israel sometime in the Old Testament period, nor can we say everything in Zechariah chapter 14 is going to occur exactly as described at the end of the 1,000 years when the New Jerusalem comes down. There are some applications that apply to events that occurred in Jerusalem and to the enemies, but there are also a number of things in Zechariah 14 that will only apply at the end of the 1,000-year period. Well, are, are you saying then the scripture I just read does not apply to the period of time after the millennium 
when New Jerusalem comes down and there's an att- and there's a resurrection of the unjust and then there's an attack on the New Jerusalem because again this is what it says then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king and then it talks about sanctions if they don't mm-hmm. and as I said there could be this time period prior to their final destruction that, you know, we think of this uh, final destruction as maybe happening instantaneously, but we don't know how much time elapses from the resurrection of the wicked at the end of the thousand years to the final destruction. How does this verse apply? You know, I don't know. We'll have to see. Uh, This is talking about things that are yet to come in the future. How it all fits together, you know, it's difficult to say. Uh, We will probably understand a lot better when that time comes. But it does say survivors from the nations that attacked Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. But but before we, I, I'd also like to mention something similar in Revelation 20. Now I realize this is talking about an earlier time. Uh, Revelation 20, uh, verse 3. Now this is referring to Satan. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. Now, now, obviously, this is the beginning of the millennium. Right. But, but you people are contending that the, wor- the world is, is desolate at that point, so it would be a very odd way of stating that the world's desolate if there's nations there and, uh, and, and uh, Satan is gone so that he will not deceive them. Well, the reason the devil is unable to deceive the nations is because the nations are not there. This bottomless pit, that's... That's very odd. Well, the bottomless pit is the earth left in this chaotic condition after the second coming of Christ. You know, where the wicked are destroyed with the brightness of Christ's coming. The devil is bound to the abusos in the Greek there, which means a dark, desolate, empty, chaotic place. And he's there for a thousand years, during the 1,000 years when the righteous are all in heaven. You know, Jerry, we have a study guide. I've got to keep moving along to our next caller. But we have a study guide called A Thousand Years of Peace. And it is very detailed and goes into these different verses. And I think you'll enjoy reading it if you haven't read it yet. Call and ask for it. The number is 800-835-6747. And take a look at that study called A Thousand Years of Peace. And then maybe we can talk about those verses after you have a chance to look at that. Thanks for your call. We've got Robert listening in Washington. Robert, welcome to the program. Hello, Pastor Ross. Hi. I, my question was regarding uh, 1 Peter 4.6. Uh, I was just wanting to know if you could explain that, especially the, the last part about living according to God in the Spirit. All right, let me read the verse for those who might not have the Bible in front of them. It says, uh, 1 Peter 4, verse 6, For this reason the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. So your question on there is, who are the dead people and who are the living people in the verse? Correct, yeah, and and what it means by living according to God in the spirit as well. Okay, Um, let's break the verse up, because I think it'll make it a little clearer. It says, for this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh. So the gospel was preached to those who even, Peter's particularly talking about those in Old Testament times. The gospel was preached to them in types and shadows uh, through Christ. 
uh, we can look at that even now and we could see, yes, the gospel was preached to them through the sacrificial system, through the sanctuary. Uh, we live according to God in the spirit. So our lives now need to be spirit-led and spirit-governed. They had the gospel preached as we have the gospel preached. We were preached the gospel through Christ, through the apostles. They were preached the gospel through the types and the ceremonies that God had given the Jewish people. And, you know, that's kind of the general theme that Peter is getting at is that the Jews, they are not without excuse. They had the gospel preached to them, even as New Testament believers had the gospel preached to them. I think I read one time where uh, Peter where it was saying that um, first Peter, when, when they first uh, wrote the Bible, there wasn't any commas or punctuation kind of thing. And it could be referring to the first Peter, first Peter three, where it talks about the antediluvians. Yes. And he does talk about the antediluvian world that had the gospel preached to them as well. So, you know, it's talking about those in the old Testament times who did have the gospel and they, they are without excuse. But we have even less of an excuse because we have a clearer preaching of the gospel that's come through Christ and through the Word. Okay. Well, thank you, Pastor. All right. Thanks for your call, Robert. Appreciate it. You're listening to Bible Answers Live. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. Call us at 1-800-GOD-SAYS. Did you know that Noah was present at the birth of Abraham? Okay, maybe he wasn't in the room, but he was alive and probably telling stories about his floating zoo. From the creation of the world to the last day events of Revelation, BibleHistory.com is a free resource where you can explore major Bible events and characters, enhance your knowledge of the Bible, and draw closer to God's Word. Go deeper. Visit BibleHistory.com. Deep within the pages of the Bible, stories of great heroes, heroes of great deeds, great love, and great sacrifice. But behind them is another hero, hidden in plain sight amid the shadows. He was there from the beginning, and he'll be there until the end. Discover the golden thread of a Savior woven throughout the entire Bible tapestry. Shadows of Light seeing Jesus in all the Bible. Get your copy today by calling 800-538-7275. Next caller that we have is Jonathan, and uh, Jonathan is listening in Canada. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Hello. Hi, Jonathan. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor John. Hi. How old are you, Jonathan? Hmm? How old are you? I'm good. Are you good? All right, good. How many years old are you? What's your age? I'm six. Oh, you're six. Okay. Very good. What's your question, Jonathan? My question is, why did David have to fight Goliath? Okay. Well, God had told Saul, who was the king at the time, that judgment was to come against the Philistines or the Philistines because uh, they were warring against God's people, against Israel. Goliath was this giant and uh, there were none of the soldiers of Saul, none of the Jewish soldiers 
who were willing to fight him because they were afraid. But Daniel said, if God is for us, we don't have to be afraid. God will give us the victory. And so David fought Goliath, and sure enough, he got the victory. And of course, we know uh, we have that wonderful story in the Bible about David and Goliath. So uh, David fought Goliath because he was doing what God had asked the Israelites to do in conquering the Philistines. All right, Jonathan? Thank you. All right, you're welcome. Thank you for your call. All right, we have uh, Ralph listening in Michigan. Ralph, welcome to the program. Yes, I, was, I need some clarification. On, since Jesus ate, will we have to have a um, bowel movement, um, even though we will have a glorified body? Okay. Well, we do know that when Jesus rose from the dead, he did eat. But, you know, we we also know that Christ is a bit of a different dimension than we are because he appears and then he disappears. Uh, we also know that Jesus was caught up and he went up to heaven. And so uh, he had the glorified body. The Bible doesn't say, I don't think it's necessary with the glorified body because you know, we'll be able to travel through space. Uh, we'll be able to live out there where uh, normally with our bodies now we can't. So uh, we don't know exactly what the, the glorified bodies are going to be like. But one thing we do know is that we are going to be able to eat. And uh, we have that example given to us of Jesus. And we also um, go through walls. We will actually go by the um, speed of thought, really, too, as far as thinking. Well, you know, probably we'll have to travel a little faster than light because um, it's going to take a long time. So, yes, there's going to be some kind of travel. We know the angels can travel very quickly. So maybe we get to travel the same way they do. But uh, that's something we'll have to find out when Jesus comes. Okay. Okay, let Thank you so much, Mr. John. I appreciate you. All right. Thanks, Ralph. Appreciate your call. All right. Next caller that we have is Andrew listening in New Mexico. Andrew, welcome to the program. Yes, I just needed to ask you a question. Sure. Where does it say in the Bible about the UFOs? Well, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything about UFOs. We do know that there are good angels, and we know they are bad angels, and I think it is possible for the devil to maybe try and impersonate something or someone or, or make somebody see something or maybe try to scare someone. But the other worlds aren't coming and visiting our world in flying saucers. Uh, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. I see. And um, what? You don't have any scriptures I can go, uh, go by? Well, if you're asking specifically about UFOs, uh, the Bible doesn't say anything about UFOs, but it does talk about other worlds. And this is in Hebrews chapter 1, where it says, through Christ, God created the worlds. And it uses the plural form. And then in the book of Job, Job chapter 1, it talks about a meeting that occurred with the sons of God. These weren't people from earth because the devil came representing the earth. So there are other created worlds out there with intelligent beings. We don't believe that they sinned. seems like our world is the only one that sinned. They are aware of what's happening. And they can communicate with angels. They can communicate with God. So we will get to visit these worlds when Jesus comes. But as far as UFOs coming and snatching people and taking them off to planets, uh, there's nothing in the Bible that talks about that. And when does a three and a half year start? We're now at the time of the end. So when does a three and a half year start? What is it? What scripture in the Bible where it says for? Well, it, there's no scripture that says specifically that there are three and a half years just before Jesus comes. But the Bible does tell us that there are certain signs that will take place before Christ comes. There's an increase 
of natural disasters. There's floods, there's tornadoes, there is unrest between nations, wars, rumors of wars. There are pestilences, diseases. And then the final thing, just before Jesus comes, you have the outpouring of the seven last plagues. But it doesn't say it's going to be three and a half years. It might be. We don't know. But the Bible does not specifically say that it's three and a half years after the plagues come. And those people in the other uh, galaxies will get to see them? And where, where do they come from? They were created by God. You know, we will get to see them. God created the angels. He created other beings in, on other worlds. And yeah, after Jesus comes, I, I think we will have an opportunity to, to visit. And that'll be kind of neat to travel through the universe and meet these other created beings on other worlds. Well, Andrew, thank you again for your call. I'm going to try and take one more, maybe two more, before we uh, run out of time. We've got Daniel listening in Arizona. Daniel, welcome to the program. Hello, Pastor. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. Okay, well, um, yeah, my question was uh, the, the gentleman that just, uh, about the other worlds, you know, I've been reading a lot on the uh, on other books. Um, now, she she does say that, that she go, does go to other worlds. And as you said in Hebrews, um, uh, that there is other worlds. Uh, when God created us in his likeness, did he create everybody else in his likeness? Or was he, is he talking specifically about us on earth? Okay. Um, it seems as though for, for us, for the human race, uh, we were a little different than the other creation. And uh, the reason we say that is because it says God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And what's unique about the human race versus angels uh, is that we can procreate in our image. The angels can't do that. The devil can't do that. And I think that's one of the reasons he hates us so much. But we, God has given us the ability to create in our own image a life or a likeness unto ourselves in our children. And we get to share a very special experience with our children a love and a belonging that reflects on the way God feels about us. Can the other worlds procreate? I, I don't think so. I mean, the Bible doesn't say for sure, but I think we're unique in that sense In when God said, let us make man in our image. And he made them male and female. We know angels are not made male and female. They're just... Uh beings or you know spiritual or something right right okay they beings right powerful beings intelligent beings thank you very much and uh, god bless all right thanks for your call daniel we've got johnny maybe we have time for one more johnny listening from alabama johnny welcome to the program hey thank you how you doing i'm doing well okay here's the question okay in the book of acts chapter nine mm -hmm. when uh, paul was on the road I think, to Damascus, or... Uh -huh. And he said in verse 7, 9 and 7, And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. When you go to Acts 22 and verse 9, when Paul was testifying about this thing that happened in, in Acts chapter 9, he said, he said this, And they that were with me saw indeed the light, and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. And I've, that have always puzzled me. Chapter 9, it says he did. Right. So the way I've seen it, and I think it makes sense, is uh, what happened to those who were with Paul. They saw the light. They heard a voice, but they could not understand what was being said. They didn't hear 
when God said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? They didn't understand that. They didn't know that. Maybe they heard the noise, but they couldn't understand what it was. Only Saul, who is converted and becomes Paul, actually understood the message that God was giving him. And of course, as you know, that led to his conversion. He repeats that several times. So uh, they heard something, but they couldn't identify the voice. They couldn't hear exactly what God said to Paul. Only Paul was able to hear that. Thank you for your call, Johnny. I'm looking at the clock. We don't have time to take another call, but we want to thank all of those who called in this evening. If it didn't get to your question, uh, call us again next week. We're going to have another program, and we'll be happy to take your Bible questions. Until then, God bless. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live. Honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions. Did you know Amazing Facts has a free Bible school that you can do from the comfort of your own home? It includes 27 beautifully illustrated study lessons to aid in your study of God's Word. Sign up today for this free Bible study course by calling 1-844-215-7000. That's 1-844-215-7000. Would you like to know God's plan for our troubled world and solutions for your life's challenges? Beautifully redesigned and updated, Amazing Facts 27 Bible Study Guides provide straightforward Bible-based answers that are enlightening, encouraging, and easy to understand, giving you real relevant Bible answers to questions like, how can I have healthier relationships? When will Jesus come? And much more. Order yours today by visiting afbookstore.com or by calling 800-538-7275. Have you ever skipped a meal? Not a bad idea if you need to watch your waistline, but there's a heavenly food you should never skip, God's Word. Yet, how can you dive in daily when you're so busy? Amazing Facts has you covered, and it's as easy as signing up for our daily devotional and verse of the day, both sent directly to your inbox, ready to bless, inspire, and inform you. To start receiving the Amazing Facts daily devotional and verse of the day, visit AmazingFacts.org and click on Bible Study in the main menu. You'll be glad you did. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California.